It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you're dead. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Thanks so much for tuning in here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. Multiple ways you can interact with us here on the program. You give us a ring at 201-939-4513. You could also use hashtag GiantsChat on Twitter. And a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So we are gearing up for week nine against the Raiders Sunday at MetLife Stadium before the Giants then have their bye week in week 10. Joe Judge spoke earlier today. We'll get into that, and obviously then we'll get into the ins and outs of this matchup. So, Paul, let's start with the injury news. Joe Judge, as I mentioned, he spoke with the media earlier today. I think the biggest development is the fact that Saquon Barkley and Xavier McKinney were removed from the COVID-19 reserve list. So that certainly is a positive development. Gary Brightwell is the only player that has yet to be cleared. That was why... They added Dexter Williams to the practice squad, so they're preparing to have insurance in case Brightwell is not cleared in time for Sunday's game. But Barkley has not been at the facility. He's not had an opportunity to continue to go through rehab, and he hasn't been able to take part in practice. So while Joe Judge wouldn't rule him out, I think if you connect the dots at this point, Paul, very unlikely that Barkley is going to be back here before the bye week. I totally agree with you, Lance. I just don't see the odds being very good. And and to be honest, uh, as we were out there during the media portion of practice today, we did see uh, Dexter Williams, the guy you just mentioned a moment ago. We did not see Brightwell. We did not see Barkley. We did not see Sterling Shepard. We, however, did see through the individual positional drills of the media portion, we did see Galladay which is a very good sign. And, of course, we also did see Kadarius Toney, who I think most people, after he did come back at the end of the game last week, believed that he probably would be a go. And certainly from what we saw this morning, I would say that's a very, very strong likelihood. Yeah, I think it was extremely encouraging to your point that he returned late in the Chiefs game. So if he was able to return, barring a setback at some point this week, you figured he'd be good to go. Sterling Shepard never returned, so that certainly wasn't promising. Plus, remember, Paul, this is now a new injury. This is the quad injury on top of the two hamstrings that he was dealing with. So you put all that together, once again, think it's a long shot. As far as Galladay, I thought it was interesting, Paul, towards the latter part of Joe Judge's presser, He was posed the question, and we always talk about this. Well, you got the bye week coming up. Isn't it practical to say, Kenny, take another week, then you have the bye week, so you have two more weeks, and then we'll bring you back for Tampa Bay in week 11? I think that's a sound, rational question that I'm sure most teams and coaching staffs would be considering, but Judge's counter to that was, we've got to treat every game of utmost importance, which I wholeheartedly agree with him, because sometimes that's walking the fine line of being in the playoff hunt versus being completely out of it, and it could be a game smack in the middle of the season that comes back to bite you. And he also said, we're just thinking small picture. Is he medically cleared and available for this Sunday period? That's the conversation. It's not, is he going to be better off three weeks from now? Is he going to be better off five weeks from now? It's clear, is he ready to go this week? If the answer is no, we don't play him. If the answer is yes, then the door is open. Yeah, I think it's very interesting, Lance. Since Joe Judge got here, his M.O. has been 
if the trainers and medics say it's a green light, it's a green light. He just doesn't seem to have any kind of gray area there. Uh, if, if it's good, it's good. The guy plays. If he's available and they tell me he's available, he plays. There doesn't seem to be any trepidation on his part to even think about holding a guy out an extra week just for the sake of uh, extra rehab or the odds of getting the guy back to a greater percentage of health. His, his M.O. is quite clear. He is going to lean very, very, very strongly on the medics, and it's not going to be a situation where they green light a player and he says, ah, you know what, I think I'll give him another week of rest or another week of training, another week of rehab, and he'll be stronger down the line. I uh, Judge doesn't seem to favor that at all. And the other thing that he brought up was the fact that Galladay has been campaigning and pushing heavily to be able to suit up and play for this game. And it's understandable. Remember, he got hurt in the Cowboys game, so he's missed the Rams game, the Panthers contest, as well as the Chiefs. He's been out the last three, so this would be a return after a number of weeks of being able to rest up that knee. And even if you want to think big picture... If he does feel soreness, let's say, assuming he plays, Paul, he's got the bye week then to recover and recuperate. And then, remember, they don't play until Monday night against Tampa Bay. So you really have, not only do you have the bye week, but you really have then the extended week going into the Tampa Bay game. That is correct. And anybody who has seen Kenny Galladay walk around the facility or even on his way to practice or from practice, you see what a business-like approach he has. Look, I don't know anything about what happened in Detroit other than I know that when I I spoke to uh, one of his former teammates out there, they told me that he was well-liked in the locker room, that he was a workaholic, he was very professional, he was a very hard worker who gave his all to his craft, and I, I take that at the player's word. Well, since I've seen him here, he, he is as serious and as stone-faced as anybody I have ever seen when it comes to the seriousness of his work. He's, he's very much dedicated to try to do what he can on the field. And I get the impression, to be frank with you, that he's very grumpy and agitated when he's not out there playing. This is a guy who doesn't smile very much and doesn't show a little hump hop in his step or you know, any kind of energy away from the field. He wants to be out there in the worst way. And I again, I I just get the impression that that he is frustrated, disgusted, and maybe even flat out agitated by not being able to get on the field. So I don't doubt Joe Judge at all when he says Galladay is desperate to play again. Well, I also think if you take into consideration what he went through last season with the Lions, when, remember, his season was cut short and he was banged up, you combine that with what he's dealing with this season, you're talking about, Paul, he's played in only 10 games going back to the beginning of 2020. And we're already into week nine, and we played an entire 16-game slate last season. So, you know, you add up the math there, we're well into the mid-20s, and he's only been out there for 10 games. It's understandable that he would be frustrated. And to your point, he's not a very talkative individual. I think he saves up all of his emotion 
for using it on the playing field as opposed to being off the field. Now, remember, when he's behind closed doors with his teammates, maybe he's got a different personality. You know, some guys are a little bit more comfortable, right, and open when they're amongst people they know very well as opposed to the media. But if you watch and you listen to his media interactions, it's to the point, short responses. He's not somebody that opens up immensely. He's not very talkative. He's not a chatterbox. There are some guys that, you know, are bubbly. They show their personality, Paul. Guys come in different sizes, lengths, you name it, and personalities. But Galladay is a very reserved player, I think is a good way to describe him. I don't read too much into that because at the end of the day, football players are always going to be judged based on how they perform between the white lines, not necessarily where they put a dog and pony show on in front of a microphone. Well, you know what, though, Lance? I, I do appreciate the fact that so many big play wide receivers in this league are divas. Let's not pull any punches here. A lot of guys are divas. And they love the me, me, me spotlight. And they love to have fun and be gregarious because they believe that's going to get them more attention. Kenny Galladay, and I'm, I'm saying this with 150% certainty, Kenny Galladay just wants to go out on the field and make plays. He is not a me, 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 put the spotlight on me kind of guy who just wants cameras and microphones in his face. That is just not him. He is a very serious guy who really wants to play football. I, I think I, I get that vibe from him, from just being around him, seeing him around the facility, seeing him on the sideline when he's not allowed to practice and they keep him on the side with the trainers. I see a guy who just doesn't seem to to um, to relish the fact that he is a, quote, big play wide receiver in the NFL. I, I don't see that. I see a guy who's grinding his teeth because he wants to play. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here. Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll open up the phone lines in a little bit. But in addition to the injury news, Paul, let's jump into this matchup as they're now going to get their second straight opponent coming out of the AFC West. This is the first place team. Normally we think we'd be talking about the Chiefs as the first place team in that division. It's the Raiders 5-2. and two. They're coming off their bye. An emotional week for them because of what occurred with wide receiver Henry Ruggs, who's no longer a, mar- a part of the team. I actually want to start on the defensive side of the ball in terms of what the Giants' offense has to deal with because this was a pass-rushing unit, the Raiders, that they showcased. That was one of the worst in getting after the quarterback last season. They only had 21 sacks in 16 games last season. They are just through seven games, Paul. They already have 18 sacks. Mm -hmm. And they've got two guys on the perimeter. In Yannick Ngakwe, who they brought in via free agency, and Max Crosby, who they drafted, they're one and two respectively, those two guys, in quarterback hits, and they've been very effective in terms of obviously disrupting the QB. They don't need to blitz a lot because of the efficiency of their front four. So this is probably one of the biggest tests for the Giants' offensive line that we've seen over the last few weeks because of the two edge rushers, but also because... They don't have to get extremely creative in bringing the house to finish the job. Well, you could actually look at that another way, Lance, and that is because they use a standard four-man front most of the time, it might actually be easier for the Giants to pick it up because their pass protection has been pretty good for the most part this year, and at times when they've broken down, it's been because teams have sent five and six and using stunts and twists that that becomes a bit of a sticky situation for the Giants. But when teams just rush their standard four, or if they're rushing a straight-on five, 
the Giants actually have done a good job at picking that up this year. Now, just to give you an idea of what Lance is talking about, folks, the Raiders only blitz 13% of the time, which is the lowest percentage in the National Football League, and that comes out to an average of about five blitzes per game. Think about that for a second. Only five blitzes per game. Now, that's not to say they won't send 10 or 15 blitzes at the Giants on Sunday. Certainly, sure. every game is different. But when you consider that their defense, through half of their schedule, is only coming with a blitz about five times a game, I mean, that's that's remarkably small. It, it, it just speaks to the testament of how strong Nagakwe and Crosby have been on the edge. I mean, they're tied with the Giants, right, for 12th Correct. in the they league with 18 sacks. sacks. Yep. Okay. And they haven't had to create the pressure. The pressure just comes from the front four. Now, I gave a stat the other day, Lance. I don't know if you were on the program, but there's a stat, and I, I call it the duress number. Duress being it's a combined number of quarterback hits, quarterback pressures, and sacks. If you combine all three numbers, you have what I call the duress number. Well, it just so happens that the combination of Crosby and Nagakwe, they have the highest duress number of any pass rushing duo combined in the entire National Football League. You know, I, I understand their sacks aren't necessarily one and two. They're not at the top of the top in terms of sacks. But when you add up the hits, the pressures, and the sacks, they have provided more duress than any duo in the league. And that speaks volumes when you consider they're doing it on their own without necessarily sending the house. Yeah, they have nine sacks combined. And what's also impressive, of the 18 sacks, the defensive linemen are responsible for 17 and a half of those 18 sacks. That means that the only half sack remaining is accounted for by a linebacker. That's it. So that's why they believe their defensive front can do all the heavy lifting because I think the numbers certainly support that. Now, I think if there's an issue in terms of this Raiders defense, it's their inability to stop the run consistently. And sometimes you want guys that get after the quarterback, of course, but when they get after the quarterback, they struggle to stop the run in the process of doing that. And I think at times you could say the Raiders are guilty of that. So can the Giants get their run game going in a game like this? That certainly would be beneficial to somebody like Daniel Jones. We also saw, based on the Chiefs game, with what Devontae Booker did, you know, Booker had over 120 total yards in that game, and a number of his big plays, Paul, came off of short passes, right? You dump it off yeah. to Booker, and then you let him get out in open space. So, you know, that's another area that I think the Giants should look to continue. They don't necessarily have to feel, hey, Booker can only do his damage as a runner if they could get him out in open space as a receiver. That was Booker's best game as a Giant. You would By agree, far. right? I mean, he, 100%. He looked good. He looked good last week. That's the guy they thought that they were going to sign. Now, here's the one thing I will say. Jonathan Hankins, the former Giant, is the starting nose tackle uh, for the Raiders. And he's a little bit long in the tooth. And quite frankly, these last few years, he's not the same player he was when he was with Big Blue. But when you look at this Raiders defense, and I always talk about the path to victory every week, I look at it, and the bad news is, really, to be frank with you, Lance, 
you need to play bully ball, smash mouth football, if you really want to beat this Raiders team because they've got so much team speed. We've already talked about the fact that they get pressure with their front four, which means they can play coverage with that team speed in the back seven. Well, what do the Giants do offensively? Let's face it. They don't really run the ball very well. They don't block it very well. They don't run it very well. So I get what you're saying. You know, go to the short pass and use that as the pseudo run. Yeah, but when you have team speed like the Raiders do in the back seven and you're not sending extra guys at the line on the blitz, they can all play coverage. To me, the Raiders' strength on defense plays perfectly against what the Giants' strength is on offense, and that's not good if you're the Giants. What you'd like to be able to do is say, we've got the ability to do what they're weakest against. And I just don't see the Giants playing anything close to bully ball or smash mouth football that relies heavily on the running game. And that's really, I'm telling you, that is the best way to beat this Raiders team. Well, I've been impressed with the Raiders secondary, which is what you were hitting on. And we actually had a conversation with Vic Tafer, which is going to be part of the upcoming Giants Huddle Game preview podcast, who covers the Raiders to the Athletic. And one of the things that was brought up was they just added Brandon Faison from the Chargers practice squad on October 6th because that corner opposite Casey Hayward, they've sort of mixed and matched some guys. And he's come in over the last three games, and the guy's got – Five passes defense, he's got an interception, 12 tackles, and he also played within Gus Bradley's scheme because Gus Bradley, who's the defensive coordinator, had the same position with the Chargers over the last few seasons. So now he has Casey Hayward and Brandon Faison as his two outside corners, and those two guys had played in his system for several years. And even though Hayward's up there in age, I mean, this is 10th season, Faison's a much younger guy, a little bit more upside. Both of those guys, for the most part, specifically Faison, who I've been most impressed with, has been solid. So, you know, if they combine the speed and the good coverage skill and you can't go for the deep bombs, I get the point that, well, they don't run the ball either well, but maybe if you could take advantage of any area, regardless of the speed, Paul, I don't love this linebacking core for the Raiders. I think that's where they've underachieved, and they actually have a nice group of guys. Corey Littleton was a pro bowler not too long ago. Denzel Perryman, they acquired, and K.J. Wright, who was obviously with the Seahawks. They've got veteran guys there. I just don't think that those guys are excelling and performing at the same level they were a few years ago. So that's why, to me, the middle of the field could very well be an area to attack in a game like this. Well, Littleton was known as a coverage linebacker for several years, and yeah, he's been around a little while. Perryman's interesting because he's got over 80 tackles already this year, uh, and that's a ridiculous number, Lance, when you think about it, right? I mean, over 80 tackles at the midpoint of the season, he's <laughs> he's tracking pretty well. And when, when I was talking to Kyle Rudolph the other day, and he said the thing about him is that he's just really good at getting downhill and filling the gaps. He's a straight-ahead downhill linebacker who will just crash the line of scrimmage, and, and he's doing very, very well, very active against the run, moving forward. Now, you just said a minute ago you want to attack the linebackers in coverage. That's probably a good idea. You know, if you're hoping to get any traction at all, I would think that, yeah, you, you would try to hit some screens and bubble screens and, yep. and the little check downs and the dump offs and the flat passes and maybe even a wide receiver screen or two. 
I would think those are going to be the kinds of things the Giants have to do because I don't think they can just line up a bulldozer and ram it down their throats. The Giants haven't done that all year. That's why when we look at the most productive games for a running back, it's when they've actually been involved in the passing game as sort of a safety valve for Daniel Jones, which was on display against the Kansas City Chiefs. As we move forward here, we'll get into the flip of this matchup in terms of the Giants' defense against the Raiders' offense and how well Derek Carr has played. But right now, let's open up the phone lines as we move forward here on Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, 201-939-4513. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you. Mike is in Virginia. He gets us going on BBKL. What's happening, Mike? Hey, what's going on? Good afternoon, fellas. Hi. Um, uh, what it seems like with the Giants this year is uh, a lack of consistency. We're starting to be a little consistent. They showed a little bit on defense these past well, a couple games. But offense, we still don't have an identity. Um, we we're, Last week, we were able to take advantage of, what was it? Uh, they, they weren't a good um, uh, run-stopping team, correct? Within, um, the Chiefs? So we were able to use our back out the backfield, get him, get him uh, going a little bit. But the lack of consistency as far as the pass rush is what caught us off guard. Uh, the lack of consistency of being able to block on the O-line, uh, give us some time. Because there's, there's been games where Daniel Jones has had time. Sure. And then we have these games like last week. Last so, week it wasn't um, really bad until the final possession when they gave up right, two yeah, sacks. Bad timing, right? That's when they needed it. They so, sure did. Um, we're, also, we're also dealing with... And I, I don't use it as an excuse, but these injuries is just ridiculous, man. I mean, Shep, Shep been out. He was out for what uh, these last two or three games. He comes back, and you see him. He 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 plants hard. He he cuts hard, and now the quad goes out. So it's like once you get him back, I'm I'm honestly just looking forward to the to this uh, bye, to just let him get some more rest. Uh, hopefully, we can get some of our people back. I heard Lance say that. Um, the Raiders are not good as far as linebackers. So hopefully, and, and we can work the deep middle. So hopefully we can take advantage of that. You know, hey, I've been on, I called plenty of times before, Paul and I, we share the same feeling as far as that, that deep seam route. Uh, hopefully we can start seeing that. Yeah. Just to open it up because, you know, you run the seam that, that pulls the linebackers up. You can run across route underneath it. Just something, you know, to, to, create some type of consistency, man, and, and just let's roll with it. I'm a, I'm a Joe Judge fan. Uh, everybody doesn't see what he does. I'm a coach myself. So, I, I mean, I, I see what the guy's doing. You're not always going to get the best results, but uh, he's not losing the team. And that's, that's big right now. Um, well, I just, think that was evident last season as well, consistent. Mike, when the team was struggling yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, definitely. I don't think that's a surprise. We, we just need to be more consistent, that's all, and, and get healthy. Let's get healthy, fellas. And uh, I mean, I, I know it's far fetched. I'm a huge, uh, I'm a Beckham fan to the point where I bought a Browns jersey. I'm, 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 I've been wearing this man's jersey since he's been in, in the league. And hey, I know it's far fetched, but hey, I, I crack a couple jokes with some of my friends, like, hey, he's coming back home. But you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Um, and before I go, I just wanted to send some love and prayers to the families that got affected with the the rugs incident. Man, that's very unfortunate on For both sure. sides, man. Young young man's uh, career and the family losing people, that, that's really unfortunate, man. Just got to wise up out here. 
But, uh, hey, hopefully we can get this win. Let's go Big Blue. Thanks for taking my call, fellas. Appreciate the phone call. One thing about Mike's phone call, and and he's asking about, you know, what can can you do to get the tight ends down the seams? Um, The Raiders are giving up an average of well over 10 yards a catch to tight ends this year. Now, that is a little bit unusual because you'll see teams that give up more passes or, or receptions to tight ends, and there are because it's only 44 catches by tight ends by the Raiders, which is kind of in the middle of the pack in the league. But a lot of the teams who've given up more catches to the tight ends have a less than 10-yard average per catch. The Raiders seem to be giving up more of those tight end catches downfield than a lot of other teams in the league. So I would say to Mike, you got a good idea if they're going to pull out some of those tight end seam routes to get vertical. This is probably the team you might want to do it against. As far as the point about inconsistency, I mean, we've been talking about that all season. And I think, you know, I don't want to put words in the caller's mouth, but the way that I interpret that is conversations, Paul, that you and I have had where you see a performance, for example, on Monday night where the defense held its own and you limited the Chiefs to 20 points, but the offense only produces 17. And then we've seen games where, for example, against Washington, the offense scores 29, the defense gives up 30. There's been a lot of those situations this season. It's been very rare where you see the defense hold an opponent to 20 and the offense go out and score 30, okay? Those are the performances that we haven't seen this season. And when you have a team where it's sort of a guessing game coming into every contest, sometimes you don't know what the defense is going to give you. Sometimes you have no idea what the offense is going to give you. It makes it for a dangerous team, an intriguing team, but also a very frustrating team. I think all of those words certainly apply because I'm sure even if you ask opponents as they study up on the Giants every week, they see some flashes, but they also see areas that they're hurting themselves, whether it be penalties, the lack of execution on third and shorts, which really was the Achilles heel in the Chiefs game, giving up some explosive plays on defense, not being able to stop the run. I mean, we give you a laundry list of problems, but to me, that's the biggest thing haunting the Giants right now. And I'm not even taking injuries into consideration because they've been battling them all year. Sometimes you just you have no idea what you're going to get out of each of the facets, and that's why it's been a struggle for them to finish games and close out games. Well, I think part of that problem too, Lance, is do you really know who's going to be available to you each and every week? I mean, it seems as though you. I mean, you tell me how many snaps. I haven't gone back and actually looked at this. How many snaps have the Giants had this year, where Tony Shepard, Galladay, and Barkley? We're all on the field at the same time. Probably very few. It reminds me of, remember, we've had these same conversations for the last few seasons where you were decimated by injuries and then you were thinking about, well, what would the team look like if they had about these five guys on the field at the same time? Absolutely. It it never came to fruition. I still believe that last season, had the Giants had Barkley uh, instead of, you know, losing him in that Chicago game, I think if they had had Barkley the rest of the way, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that they could have won two more games, maybe even three, if they had had Barkley the whole way, you know, instead instead of Wayne Goldman, who did a nice job. And the, but by the the way, and I know it's hard to say the hypotheticals are crazy, and I don't blame you. You don't like to play those games, no, and I'm no, with you, and I'm with you. But considering how the offensive line got settled in, 
and actually started to get that running game going by the middle of the season. Remember, they had that stretch, Lance, for about six games where they were averaging like 140 yards a game on the ground. Remember that? Correct. Yes. And, and that was with Wayne Goldman. Um, imagine if during that stretch they had Barkley. I don't think it's too crazy to think that they, they could have won at least two more games. But, you know, it is what it is because the reality is he was unavailable. Well, but also they were winning games, though, I would argue, Paul, when they had that great stretch on the ground. They won some. Yeah, they won some. I mean, I'm bringing up the numbers if you go back to last season. So I would say it started week 16 against Washington. They ran for 132 yards. They averaged over five yards a carry. That game, it was a nail-biter, but they won that game when Washington failed on the two-point conversion. Then week seven, they had 160 yards against the Eagles. They averaged over seven yards per carry. They won that game as well. They ran for 101. The yardage per carry went down to 4.2. That was against the Bucs, but that was a game that also came down to the wire. Then they visit Washington, a buck 66, nearly five yards a carry. They won that game. And then they ran for 151 against the Eagles. And I stand corrected. They lost the game at Philadelphia. That was yeah, that nail-biter where Philly came back. But they won the right. second game uh, they, against Philly. Right. And, then they, and then they had 142 yards rushing against the Bengals. So through that stretch, they lost to Philadelphia and Tampa Bay. But we're talking about they beat Washington, Washington, Philly, and the Bengals. So they won four of the six games. And let's tack on the Seattle game. They, were, they ran for 190 yards, Paul. So they won five out of seven games during that stretch. Yeah, but... Again, they lost to Tampa on a two-point conversion when the penalty flag was picked up at the end yeah. of the game. So I, I'm going to say to you, they should have beaten Tampa Bay if Barkley was in the lineup. And I'm also going to say that the Eagles game that they lost 22-21 to would have also have been a win had Barkley been available. Well, but the bottom line is, remember, they had he the wasn't. third down conversion. He wasn't. No, no, I guess my point is, I don't know if Barkley is taking the rushing numbers up tremendously. I mean, when you run the ball for 160-some-odd yards I mean, without Barkley, yeah, I mean, maybe he gives you a little bit more, but it wasn't a problem of execution and moving the chains. It was a problem in crunch time, being able to close it out. And when you throw the ball to Evan Ingram, I don't know if Saquon Barkley is going to do anything to help your cause in terms of catching the football. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. If you've got Barkley in the lineup, maybe he goes out there to catch that pass instead of throwing it to Ingram. Because as you've said many times, and we're on board here, he's an offensive weapon. He's not just a running back. So I would like to believe that their offensive efficiency, regardless of what the running back uh, numbers were in those games, I'd like to believe that their offensive efficiency would have improved, that it would have been worth at least a few more points in both of those games. But it's it's a hypothetical. It's 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 water under the bridge. We should really kind of stick to what's going on Sunday. Sure. No. Well, I think the reason why we went in that direction is I don't think they're running the football as effectively without Saquon this season compared to where they were last. No season. doubt. They're that not, to me is not my biggest takeaway. <laughs> yeah. The problem. No. No. So what I, so what we're saying is is that you were able to effectively at least have a semblance of a run game without Barkley last season, and we could sit here all we want and decipher if he was on the field what he would have done. But we're back to square one this season. You yeah. don't have Wayne Goldman and an offensive line that's run blocking effectively. So you're not getting those games where you're scratching the surface of 130 yards or 160 exactly. yards on the ground. And that's why this matchup is very concerning to me because what they need to do to make life 
relatively, I won't say easy, but easier and more fun for them and give them a better chance to win. What they need to do is to pound the ball and be smash mouth. I just haven't seen them do it. Let's head back to the phone lines as we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Ralph is in New Jersey, and he joins us. What's happening, Ralph? Hello, hey, Leslie, boy. Hi. Doing all right, Ralph. What do you got for us? Oh, I actually got two questions to ask you guys. Um, yeah, since Joe Judge has been catching a lot of criticism because, you know, of uh, discipline and things like that, I just wanted to ask you guys, how hard do you think it is to teach a team full of grown men, you know, discipline? How hard do you think that is for a head coach? Like, that's my first question. Well, why don't you give us the second one, and then we'll expand upon both. Uh, my second question was, I know Stephon Barkley is near to come back. Um, do you guys think he's going to be wrapped up, or is he going to be like, full go? All right, so those are your two questions in terms of discipline and Saquon Barkley's mindset upon his return. Yeah, is he, he going to be a full goal? Is he going to be like on a pitch count or something like that? Okay. All right. Well, we'll certainly tackle both of those, Ralph, and we appreciate the phone call. In terms of Saquon's return, I mean, number one, you'd like to get a better idea of when he could return. We're assuming that hopefully it'll be right after the bye week, assuming he doesn't play this week. Right. I don't think that, Paul, they would hold him back because, you know, this is not the conversation we were having at the beginning of the season where he was on pup for a good portion of training camp in the offseason and he was still – recovering from, obviously, knee surgery. He's already returned. He's already played games. This is a completely different injury. I go back to what Joe Judge said. If he's healthy enough to play, then they're going to put him out there, and I don't think there's going to be major concerns about that. I agree with you, Lance. I think the only the only um, asterisk that Joe Judge puts on his philosophy in terms of playing guys who get the green light is, as we saw earlier in the year, when the conditioning factor comes into play. If the guy hasn't had enough work in practice and hasn't had all of the conditioning that he needs to be able to sustain a high or, or sufficient level of play over the course of a regular game when he would get his normal amount of snaps, that's when Joe is going to say, okay, he's got the green, he gets to play, but we're going to monitor him during the game and we're going to see how many touches and how many snaps he gets. Under those circumstances, he may pull back a little bit. But I don't think that's the situation with Barkley right now at all. I'm with you. I think as soon as Barkley gets the green, they're going to start that engine up and he's going to be a full go. Now, as far as the discipline angle goes, and I know a lot of people are harping on this because Joe Judge has been preaching discipline, discipline, discipline since he took over as the head coach. And you and I actually had this conversation on the postgame show following the Chiefs contest that there is a distinct difference between physical penalties and mental mistake penalties. That's number one that has to be thrown out there. And I don't think the coaching staff, is falling short in terms of emphasizing, using examples from other games, telling them what the officials are focusing on. To me, in terms of cleaning up these penalties, the onus is on the players to avoid these things from happening. For example, Eli Penny, okay? You could celebrate the first down, but then you took it too far when you then rubbed it in the face of the opponent. You don't have to do that. You're going to tell me that Joe Judge and the coaching staff, Paul, did not emphasize to the players, guys, they are looking at taunting very carefully this season, and you give players examples, 
I remember when we had other previous head coaches and even other coaches on the staff, when they would meet with the media every week, they would talk about showing them video clips, Paul, around the league. Yes. I know special teams was focusing on that. Tom Quinn, when he spoke to the media, he would talk about that. They they would go back. They would look at special teams issues across the league. They would show the guys, hey, this happened in week three. This is something that we should be aware of. So, you know, that is happening across the league. It's not just the Giants. So, you know, if people are pointing out, well, you know, the message is not getting across. No, I think the message is being laid out. The problem is when it comes to the emotion of the game, sometimes those lessons are being forgotten by the players. No, it's very true, Lance. And look, I I hate to tell people this, but it's no different than your kids at home. You know, if you're an adult and you have some young children at home and you can tell them, you know, 50,000 times, okay, be very, very careful uh, when you're near the stove. You know, don't touch the stove. Well, you know, maybe that one time the, the kid's reaching for the cookie jar and, you know, he accidentally, you know, burns the side of his hand because he touched the stove. Um, sometimes in the moment, you just don't remember the instructions you were given and you make a mistake. It happens. Look, I'm not excusing these guys for what they did. These were these were mistakes that were made that proved very costly to the team. There's no question. But if you're the coach, what are you going to do? Cut a player every single time he makes a foolish mistake? You know, if you do that, Lance, you would not have enough players to form a league because every single player during the course of his career has probably made a foolish and ignorant mistake at some time or another that he never should have made. And you also are hit with injuries at various positions that even if you did want to go down that road, you're not even affording yourself the flexibility to do that because then you know you're really hurting the team by eliminating your top-tier players or the players that obviously earned opportunities. And this is the other thing that I have been emphasizing. It's not as if this is plaguing one facet of the team. You know, you can't say, well, this is a defensive problem. It's an offensive problem. It's a special teams problem. The penalties have been spread across the board, and I tally all of them up, and I was looking through the numbers just to give you an idea, Paul. Hernandez and Solder each have four. That leads the team. And these are accepted penalties, by the way. Let me make that clear. Right. Bradbury, Holmes, Daniel Jones, Billy Price each have three. Okay, that's two defensive players, Paul. That's two offensive players. And the two offensive players were the ones that have four each. And then you have, I'm not going to read all the names, but you have 10 to 11 guys that have two penalties apiece. And I think Holmes had one of them on special teams, too. Correct, yes. Holmes did have one on special teams. That's right, because a lot of these guys are also interchangeable. Mm -hmm. So you do the math right there. I mean, that's, we're talking about, 20 to 25 guys that are responsible for multiple penalties. That's half your roster, Paul. What are you going to do? You're going to, to your point, you're going to cut half the roster and you're going to bring in new guys? It's just <laughs> it's it not work. practical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, once again, if this, was, if this was a situation, Paul, where you would say there are two culprits, right? There are two guys that consistently at the end of games are doing this over and over now again. Now you make an example out of them. Correct. Okay? Then I think it's a little bit easier to make a statement. When I just listed you all the names that have been the offenders, to me, it's not so simple where you just put a player out on an island and you teach the team a valuable lesson. It just it doesn't work so easily from that standpoint. Right.
And I think that's what people need to understand. That's why I'm getting caught up in the numbers in terms of the penalties. Because, you know, once again, we could just say, well, this team is undisciplined. Okay, well, is it one or two guys that's undisciplined? Or is it a team issue? Right now, they are hurting themselves in all three facets of the game. You look at this last game against the Kansas City Chiefs. The drive before the end of the first half, when they had the three penalties, which completely took away any opportunity to get into field goal range. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about that last drive where now maybe they can pad the lead, take the lead, go up strong, and you got Eli Penny backs them up after having a sizable gain on the catch and run. And then, of course, on defense, when the Chiefs are now trying to go ahead, you give them favorable field position. And whether or not the penalties are justified or not, the bottom line is they were called those things are going to add up and cost you close games. And the other thing that's become a trend, they've played three games that have been decided by three points or less. It's no coincidence. Those are their three highest penalized games. So you connect the dots. This, to me, is a wide issue. It's not a one- or two-player issue. Fair enough. Yeah. And, you know, once again, is it so simple that Joe Judge is going to wave a magic wand, Paul? No. And, no. The next game, it's going to be completely clean football? No, because as much as you preach and teach fundamentals, sometimes when you're in the moment or you're trying to tackle a guy, or better yet, listen, I never want to defend a player and say fundamentally sound football or the lack thereof is, is bad, but there are times, Paul, where remember an offensive lineman, he knows he's beat, and in order to protect the quarterback, he's got to hold on to the guy for dear life or else you could put your quarterback in a precarious spot. I would mm-hmm. say that may be a circumstance where it's not terrible to take a penalty if you know the end result could be far worse. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, and that's one of a very small group of penalties that coaches will say on Monday morning, you know what, that was a good one you took there. Because, you know, our quarterback was about to get absolutely flattened. And you saved him from being smashed. And probably saved him, you know, from being put on the injured list or worse. Uh, Yeah, you're absolutely right. There will be times where there's a, quote, good penalty to take. There are those. Not very many, but there are some. I agree with you. You Quite frankly, even too, a guy in the secondary... Um, could maybe potentially commit a defensive holding penalty, you know, or even a pass interference penalty if he's making up for the fact that, unfortunately, he was beaten so bad it's going to be a 70-yard touchdown. And he decided, you know what, the heck with this. I I know I'm (laughs) fried. I'll just take the flag because if I don't, it's six points. Bingo. Would you rather them have to earn it in the red zone with a few extra plays right in a tight space, or would you rather give up the home run for a touchdown? No doubt. No doubt. Now, are those examples some things that came to light over the last few games for the Giants? No, okay? We're just bringing that up. Paul and I are talking about this to say that there are certain circumstances where you can argue maybe a penalty or a mental mistake turns out to be beneficial. Now, for the Giants, none of those penalties, Paul, unless you disagree, would apply to what we were talking about, where a Giants player took one for the team to sort of bail them out. Yeah, I I would be hard-pressed to go back and review, what is it, 44 penalties they've taken so far this year? 54 54, 54. Yes, 54. Yeah, I knew it was a four or something. 54. I'd be hard-pressed to go back in my mind right now and say how many of those were taken for the sake of making a better play. I'm sure there were a few, but I can't, like, at the top of my head come up with those right now. 
Yeah, I mean, there may have been a hold against an offensive lineman if you really look back. But I guess I'm referring to, if you go back to the Monday night game against the Chiefs, I don't think there's any that come to mind that I would say that fall under that category that we're talking about. No. As we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, few reminders. You can take in all the action of New York Giants football from your very own private suite. Giant Suites, great way to entertain the family and friends while rooting on your Giants here at MetLife Stadium. Speak with a Giant Suite rep, calling 888-NYG-1925. On an unrelated note, the Delta variant is spreading quickly in all areas of New York State. People who are not fully vaccinated are at greater risk from COVID-19. Protect yourself, get vaccinated, visit ny.gov slash get vaccinated or talk to your health care provider. So earlier in the show, Paul, we were talking about the Giants offense against the Raiders defense. Now let's flip the switch. Let's look at the Raiders offense against the Giants defense. And Derek Carr, this really is not a surprise to me if you look at what he's been doing over the last few seasons. I know a lot of people are pointing out, well, you know, he's having such a good year in terms of the completion percentage, 12 touchdowns, five interceptions. Paul, last season, Carr was putting up the same exact numbers. This is who Derek Carr is. He's a really good quarterback, Lance, and has been for a long time. In fact, you'll remember when Eli Manning was here, I was campaigning on BBKL that if the Giants aren't able to get themselves a franchise quarterback in the draft, that's the guy I wanted the Giants to go for to be Eli's successor. I was all over Derek Carr. I said, hey, he's a lot younger than Eli. He'll have a lot of years left. When it's time for Eli to retire, if they can get their hands on Derek Carr, that should be the guy if they can't draft one. So you don't have to sell me on him. Well, I wasn't trying to sell you. I was sort of basically just explaining to the audience that I think a guy like Carr, the reason why on a national scale, People don't put him in, you know, the top five, the top ten rankings. And, you know, I can't That's stand because they don't watch with. enough tape. They just look at fantasy football numbers. Well, sure. oh, by the way, Carr's fantasy numbers, I'm sure, are really good the last few years. Well, because his numbers have been relatively high. For example, he had 27 touchdowns last season against nine interceptions. That was his third highest total in a season in which he played 15 to 16 games, and he's been consistent because he's not played less than 15 games. So there you go, third highest total. He had a season where he had 28 scores and a season where he had 32, which was his second year of the league in 2015. Now, the only thing that could hinder him is the fact that Ruggs is off the team. And look, let's not kid ourselves. Ruggs was averaging nearly 20 yards a catch. And this year, okay, let me just give you a number here that speaks to their ability to strike quickly and deep. Seven catches of 25 yards or more, which was tied for seventh in the NFL. And when you consider that he only had 24 catches on the season, it tells you how big a part of their deep passing game Ruggs was. Now, Carr's going to be missing him. Obviously, he's not there anymore. And I'm not so sure that Brian Edwards, who himself is also averaging just over 19 yards a catch, but has only caught 18 passes during the course of the season. I'm not so sure that Edwards can necessarily fill the shoes of Ruggs. He will no doubt take a bunch of those snaps, and they will try to use him, I'm sure, in that role. But can he be as effective as Ruggs was? And if you take that component and mute it a bit out of their offensive attack, there is a question there for me as to will the Raiders offense still be the Raiders offense? Because 
from what we understand, their offensive line certainly has had some troubles. And with Josh Jacobs having a knee injury, their run game has really never been something to write home about this year either. Well, I think their offensive line gets hit because of the fact that they pretty much revamped that group. They parted ways with a lot of guys. They're pretty much an average unit in terms of pass protection. It's not like Derek Carr has right. been seen an immense amount of pressure. He's been sacked, you know, 25 to 30 but times. But they're not a great run-blocking line. Correct. So it's they the can't, run-blocking They can't aspect. lean yeah. on that and say, well, Ruggs is missing now. That's one of the components not in our in our offense. Can we find something else to fill it in? They can't lean on the run. They're still going to be a pass-oriented team. Is Edwards the kind of guy who can fill those shoes without any kind of setbacks? I don't know that, Lance. We're going to have to find out. Well, it's a small sample size for Edwards because he's also dealt with some injuries. But I actually think the guy that probably picks up the most snaps and sees the most significant jump is not so much Brian Edwards. Zay Jones is the guy, Paul, that I would argue that they're going to try. Yes, absolutely. Because Zay is the type of guy that's got the speed. He's got the size at 6'2", and he hasn't been able to get on the field as much because he had Edwards and Ruggs ahead of him. So if you're pinpointing a guy... I would watch out for Zay Jones because look at his numbers this season. If you're focusing on the average, Zay Jones, he's played in seven games. He only's had six receptions, but he's had 115 yards, Paul, on those six catches. He's averaging just over 19 yards per grab, and he had a big touchdown that you know helped them seal a win. So Zay Jones is the guy I would say the Giants need to be more aware of than necessarily a big jump out of Brian Edwards. And the other guy that I'm really concerned about, and I know they did a really good job on Travis Kelsey, but Darren Waller is very different than Travis Kelsey. This guy, he is cut from an extremely rare, unique cloth. I don't care whether you put a corner or a linebacker on him. I have seen plenty of Darren Waller games where they run him out wide as a wide receiver, Paul, Mm -hmm. and he'll just out-jump you and out-man you. So that is going to be a huge challenge. And once again, I'm not trying to take anything away from Bradbury. I thought he did a really good job on Kelsey. The team deserves a lot of credit. Yes. But Kelsey doesn't run the same type of routes and is utilized the same way that Waller is. Waller is almost a wide receiver mm-hmm. in a tight end's body. More That's fluid. the guy that could cause a massive headache for you. I would agree with that. More fluid, uh, more athletic, if you will. But I would say this. Patrick Graham, the defensive coordinator here, already said, and I wasn't surprised. I was laughing when some of the writers were like, oh, well, uh, we got to ask you. We saw Bradbury some on, uh, on Travis Kelsey. Look. The first head coach to do that was Bill Parcells. When he was in Dallas, okay, he stuck a corner on Jeremy Shockey. And that was basically, in, in, in the recent years of the NFL, that was the first time that a head coach had committed a corner to a tight end. And that was how he tried to contain and neutralize Shockey. And since that time, as we've seen more and more of these receiving tight ends, a lot of coaches have gone to using that as part of their game plan. And so I was laughing when the writers were asking Coach Graham about it as if this was something he just invented and pulled the rabbit out of his hat. And I'm thinking to myself, guys, you just don't know the game too well, do you? Uh, So Coach Graham, you know, in his typical way, smiled and said, you know, we'll do everything we've got to do, and it's not going to be unusual for you to see Bradbury occasionally matched up against some of these receiving tight ends. Now, they're still going to mix things up. They won't just stick Bradbury on him the whole game, but he said it's it's not going to be unusual for you to see certain tight ends 
draw that type of coverage as part of the mix. Let's reopen up the phone lines as we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, 201-939-4513. Craig is in North Carolina, and he joins us. What's happening, Craig? Hey, what's happening, guys? How are you doing? Hi. Doing very well. What do you got for us? Yeah, yeah great show. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's a big difference, um, I think, and I'll get your guys' opinion, with the team's mindset heading into the bye with a win rather than a loss. Uh, three and six, though it doesn't sound impressive, but it, it, it's not two and seven. I just look at a big difference for the team on that. They're not big underdogs. You can win two home games in a row. May not seem like a lot, but it's improvement. So you can at least, from the team's mindset, you could really see the growth with a win. At least there's something to prove. And a loss, it's going to be tough to find that because you really want to see that in the record. Um, so one point on that, and um, and then I have a second point if you want me to get to that right now. Or, yeah, why don't you get um, to your second point, and then we'll expand on both. Second point. Yeah, and, and not, to, not to blame Daniel Jones, um, though I'm not a big fan of him. Um, I'm a, it seems like he either, to me, gets too much criticism or he gets too much praise. So I'm kind of – I'm one of the few, I think, neutral. He doesn't have many wins against winning teams. And if he can – this is an important game for him. Um, I, I think so. I wanted to get your t- take on that. If you see it that way, because if you if you look back, he he, he doesn't have that. Not all of his fault, of course, because you know with with, with everything that, that's going on here. But um, just wanted to get your take on that for the team and for Jones. Thanks. All right. Well, we certainly appreciate the phone call. I'll, let's start with the second point. I mean, it's important to phrase it. First of all, the team. Okay, not just Daniel Jones. The team doesn't have a lot of wins <laughs> against high-caliber opponents. Good catch, okay? Lance. Good catch. Right? I mean, that's how it should be worded, <laughs> okay? You know, Daniel's not on an island, and I am someone who fights heavily against quarterback records. I can't stand that argument because you're taking the quarterback away and you're expecting him to make up for everything else that the team has struggled and with. And I the back you on overall. that with an Army tank. Yeah. I mean, that's how it should be looked at. Why doesn't the team overall in recent history have quality wins, and that's because of a variety of factors. Yes, the offense that we were talking about that has not been consistent, the defense struggling to stop the run and avoiding penalties, some special teams mishaps. I mean, you could point the finger everywhere, Paul, but, I mean, the bottom line is I wouldn't put the onus all on Daniel Jones. The team overall has not gotten the job done. No question. And I I think that, you know, in terms of his other comment, and I know we're running short on time, I just talked to Kyle Rudolph, and it was part of the MSG Joe Judge report. It's also up there online if you want to see it, uh, at Giants TV on Twitter. And I asked Kyle Rudolph specifically about that. How valuable would any win be, but especially a win going into the bye? And he wasn't bashful about saying that it is worth a whole lot more because you do have extra time to think about it. And right now, this team has been beaten up enough mentally, emotionally, psychologically, physically, in every way, shape, and form. This team has been pounded for the last couple of months. And it would really be a breath of fresh air and do them a whole lot of good if they could come out of this game Sunday with a victory. Well, at this point, I think no matter where the win comes from, no matter what time of the season it is, it's critical considering they're two and six. So, I mean, to me, I don't know if the timing is that important. This is just my personal opinion, but very similar to, I want to connect the dots here to my 
viewpoint on takeaways, and I'm always arguing takeaways are great, Paul, but it's all about what you do with them. So you could tell me, okay, the Giants, they need to get a win so that they feel good about themselves entering the bye. If they then come out flat after the bye or they don't win coming out of the bye, what good is it that we were talking about they felt great going into the bye? Well, from a record perspective, it won't make any difference really, but it does from an emotional and psychological perspective. Right now, this team has been battered every which way but loose. And I think for their own psyche, their own mental well-being, I mean, look, Lance, if you have just a horse manure show, okay, on a Friday, and you know you're not getting back on, on Mike until Monday, I don't know. I've got tremendous pride. And I know if that happens, I'm feeling really crappy until I get back on microphone again. Of course, I don't have bad shows, so that's never an oh, issue. Well, excuse but, me why, yes. But I'm just saying. No, obviously, I'm goofing with you. Of course. But yes. the point the point is, from a an emotional and psychological perspective, this team badly needs to be able to go into that respite as they try to heal up their wounds. They could also kind of help their mentality. That's where the value is. There is no value honestly, outside of any any win more than the other, outside of when you get into the postseason, obviously. But other than that, every, one, every win and every loss during the regular season is just another chalk stick on the standings in the NFL offices. I agree with that. You're 100% correct. But these are also human beings we're talking about who play the game. It's not a video game out there on Sunday. These are real flesh-and-blood players who play. It will do them a lot of good if they could come out with a win Sunday. Well, and you would assume that all these guys, if they're extremely passionate about the game they play, then, yeah, they're going to wear their emotions on their sleeves and they're going to take to heart every win and every loss. I guess I was looking at it more from the standpoint of, and I completely understand the correlation that you were making in terms of the show. I was looking at it, maybe the caller was getting to the purpose of momentum. No, and there's I don't no momentum. really love that conversation. No, no. You know, where, oh, well, you know, you get the win going into the bye. Who knows what they could do in the second half of the season. On that, and, we could agree. Okay, yeah, I don't want to go there. And no. I guess I was interpreting the caller's statement as sort of getting towards the point of, well, you know, you never know. It could build some steam. And they're not going to be playing until two weeks from nah. that win. Momentum does win. not exist in this case at all. I, yeah. I'm with you a thousand percent on that. Because it's so fluid, that. Paul. Momentum is so fluid. I will, I will say this, though, Lance, and I have mentioned it before, and I know we got to run. I will say this. Last year, when the Giants swept the division, beating Dallas, Philadelphia, and Washington, all games at MetLife Stadium, they swept the NFC East at home. It was a damn shame that the fans were shut out by the protocols and they could not enjoy it because these home fans desperately want to enjoy themselves on Sunday. They want this team to win. They want to have fun at their tailgate parties, not just before the game, but after the game as well. And the entire atmosphere of the stadium, when they beat Carolina a couple of weeks ago at home, man, I was down on the field for the final six, seven minutes of that game and the place was rocking like I haven't heard it in a long time. And that's because it is a fun environment and atmosphere when you can get those home fans jacked up. And I think that's something that this team could really use. Well, if you're coming to the stadium this weekend, just make sure you bundle up. It's only going to be a high <laughs> of 57, so it's going to be a little nippy, a little chilly. 
as they welcome in the Las Vegas Raiders for their final game before they head into the bye week in Week 10. All right, that is going to wrap up Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We will be broadcasting from MetLife Stadium out on the stage outside MetLife Stadium starting at 11.30 a.m. If you're not at the game, of course, you can hear it on WFAN, and then we will have full coverage in the postgame as well. So we appreciate everybody for tuning in. Paul, good chatting with you. I will speak to you on Sunday. You got it, Lance. See you then. A reminder, today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live, part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul DeTito, I'm Lance Meadow. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest and enjoy the game on Sunday. We'll speak to you on Monday, 1230 p.m. Eastern right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.